Welcome one and all to Extra Milestone, a spin-off series of Cinemaholics where each month we celebrate a classic film anniversary. I'm John Agroni, chief editor of Cinemaholics and host of the main show, and with me of course is Julia Tatey. Hi Julia. Hi John, thanks for having me back. Always great to have you on Extra Milestone, one of my favorite people to talk to you oh, about. Oh gosh, John, it's it's so it's so it's so dark in mm-hmm. here. It's so there's like there's dice rolling around. I hear people chattering. What what's going on? Julia, you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but we are now in an, an illegal casino in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I don't know how this happened. It's March. Oh man. <laughs> this doesn't usually happen in March. No, how did we even get here, John? Well, we are analyzing a film that has well regarded by many as being a classic film, also one of the original cult classic film noirs. And I I have so many questions for you about this movie, Julie, because you've seen it several times. And this was my first time ever watching the 1946 noir film Gilda, which was directed by Charles Vidor. And it stars the iconic Rita Hayworth, who to this day, I think we can both agree, is still like a household name for a lot of people. Absolutely, especially for anyone who's ever seen Gilda or has known anything about the Hollywood star system from the classical period of cinema in America. Rita Hayworth is definitely one of those names that even if you haven't seen her on screen, you at least know her name and know her face. Yeah, you've seen the posters and, you know, you've probably you're probably also going to recognize her counterpart in this film, who is basically the main protagonist in the first part of the film. But then it becomes a two slash three hander of a film. And that is Glenn Ford, the Canadian American actor who, you know, I, I, I was having a conversation with somebody about this and I, I, I tossed the claim out there. My film history is imperfect, so this could be a completely uh, embarrassing descriptor, but I look at the guy and I'm like, I feel like he's like the Chris Pratt of his time, you know, kind of this guy that you bring in when you want uh, somebody who it's not that they're the best actor, but they sort of have a, a swagger, a persona, very, uh, a very specific type of masculinity that is kind of accessible. I guess there's a lot of actors you could throw to that, but that, that is my Glenn Ford take. I don't know if it's uh, ridiculous. I don't think it's ridiculous. I'm not sure if that's the example I would have led with, but that's definitely the accessible the, the accessible masculinity approachability aspect is definitely there. So I definitely understand that take. It's hard to compare because there aren't a lot of actors like that today who are as famous as Chris Pratt. That's where my mind went because mm. it, Glenn Ford was super recognizable in his time. He's somebody that people looked, he was a big box office draw, essentially. And despite that, I don't think Gilda was a film that was the biggest hit. Uh, It cost about $2 million to make, and it did well in home video eventually, but uh, it wasn't wasn't the, uh, the biggest success story, I guess it's fair to say. No, that's true. Actually, even critically, um... The film, when it first came out, American critics were at least relatively positive to lukewarm about the movie, but it was actually overseas critics and audiences that really started this resurgence of popularity with the film as well. Right. That's why it's considered a cult classic. And it, it eventually made plenty of money. I think it made like $6 million worldwide, which, you know, those are older dollars and it was in theaters for quite a while. And th- this movie has a lot of interesting 
just, there's a lot of interesting history behind the timing of this. It's coming out at the tail end of World War II. Uh, it's coming to us from Charles Vider, who is more of a uh, he's a Hungarian director, so he is more of an international director. He's been making films at this point for, I want to say, about 15 years. And he just came out with a song to remember and over 21. I think one of his bigger films people might recognize is A Farewell to Arms, which won't come mm-hmm. out for another decade. That's the John Huston film. So I don't know if you have much familiarity with his filmography, but I definitely was curious because I uh, he is Jewish. So I was curious if any of that was going to sort of enter into this because there is some clear like German antagonism in Gilda. Maybe we'll, we'll get to that. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here a little bit. But my main point is that the, the context for this film is it comes out at the tail end of World War II, and it kind of is about some things that you wouldn't really expect from a lot of movies coming out in 1946, the baby boom, as it were. What did you say to him? I just told him if a man answers, hang up. Didn't you hear about me, Gabe? If I'd been a ranch, they would have named me the bar nothing. There never was a woman like Gilda. Or a picture like Gilda, Columbia's outstanding screen triumph starring Rita Hayworth with Glenn Ford. That's what I told Bell, and that's what you're going to tell me. Making me deceive my husband. I got some news for you, Gilda. He didn't just buy something. He's in love with you. One man bought Gilda. Another hated her and hungered for her. I hate you too, Johnny. I hate you so much that... I think I'm going to die from it. Darling. Gilda, inflaming men's hearts with a kiss or a song. Stop. What do you mean by it? Now they all know what I am. And that should make you happy, Johnny. It's no use just you knowing it, Johnny. Now they all know that the mighty Johnny Farrow got taken. And that he married a... So, Julia, what's the setup for this movie? What is it even about? All right. So let's take it back all the way to 1946. We're in Buenos Aires. And we happen upon our main character, Johnny Farrell, played by Glenn Ford, as you previously mentioned. Now, Johnny Farrell is kind of a heel. He's not exactly making his way, as it were. He's finding his own luck, which is definitely a motif and a verbal exchange that happens throughout the film, and we can go more into that. But he finds himself in a bit of a pinch of trouble within the first five minutes of the movie. And along comes Balin Munson, played by George McCready, with a very specific kind of... I would even describe it, since we're giving off certain connections to modern day actors, a sort of Alan Rickman style, if you will. Oh, yeah. He's very difficult to read. It's not really sure what kind of antagonist or protagonist he might be. His morality is very murky, but he saves Johnny Farrell's life 
saves what little money that he has to himself. And the two seem to form a kind of bond. They make their own luck. They don't know each other. All they have is their futures and no past whatsoever. And so Balin decides to bring Johnny into his illegal casino, which is run in Buenos Aires. And upon being brought into the fold, Johnny Farrow kind of works his way up pretty quickly to being one of these like leaders running the joint, if you will. And after Balin goes on a kind of business trip, he comes back with a new wife. And that new wife is Gilda. And it quickly becomes apparent that Gilda and Johnny have a history with one another. And what unfolds after that introduction, which is the iconic image of Rita Hayworth kind of coming up from the depths of the frame and with that beautiful voluminous hair flip that then cascades around her face and shoulders. She becomes this kind of like pawn in between these two men throughout the rest of the film. Yeah. So uh, what a, what a character introduction, because up until that point, we really only spend time with this Colin Farrell, Colin Farrell. See, that's where <laughs> Johnny Farrell, of course, Johnny Farrell, who he he's a bit of a he, like you said, he's a heel. He's a bit of a con artist. He's very smooth. He's got a lot of charm. And then as soon as Gilda enters the picture, he completely changes in the movie. He becomes a bit more of just this stoic Maltese Falcon kind of, you know, doesn't doesn't want to put up with anybody right and it's it's a little it's a little reminiscent to the the setup of Casablanca oh my gosh I couldn't stop thinking of Casablanca while watching this the international setting the World War II sort of backdrop the the intrigue the you know how they're in a club all the time all of that stuff that they have a past and everything and I, for the longest time during this movie, I was kind of like, okay, this movie is clearly a response to Casablanca. Is it supposed to be like a grittier, like darker version of that movie? I think that's a really interesting comparison. I haven't even thought of something like that before. What I was really thinking of during this time period, especially in the 40s, is you have this wave of, you also, you have this wave of like very gritty film noir Um, projects, but you also had a lot of escapism and movies that really capitalized on either this sort of American exceptionalism or being able to come into like a new age, the war is behind you. But what Gilda and a lot of other film noirs of this time period really capitalize on is this cynicism, um, especially this idea of being Um, pushed away and not being able to quote-unquote go home as it were which is also another theme that kind of plays especially for Gilda in the film I'm not I never even thought about this idea of it being kind of like a commentary on Casablanca or a response to Casablanca at all I think that's that's a really interesting connection that you made there I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was unintentional, but I can't help but feel like, I mean, considering how big that film was, and then they're making this movie just two years later, mm. I, I can't help but, you know me when it comes to theories. But yeah, yeah I mean, it, 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 it does feel like that. It feels like they wanted to maybe come in here and make a more realistic version of that film, take away some of the the hope and the exceptionalism and make something that feels a little bit more true to the the dark nature of human beings 
things. And I, I want to say, oh my goodness, with this movie, one thing that really took me off guard, because I always, I always love a really sharp script, but this film is just percolating with layered dialogue. It just feels, oh, especially yeah. the first two thirds, I feel oh like gosh. every scene I'm gobbling just a feast of subtext where everything Gilda says is like three riddles within three riddles almost. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I, I just love dialogue that is so sparkling and filled with purpose. And I was in my notes, I was like, oh my gosh, they're calling back to this thing already. And these things go together. It just feels like such a well-written piece of just a well-written movie. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that, you know, there's a really great essay by Sheila O'Malley, who I think that we should shout out, who actually did the 2016 Criterion essay on Gilda whenever it joined the uh, streaming service and then had its own Criterion release. And what she really talks about is how there is no clarity within the script. There's no clarity with the characters. It's very murky and it's very cynical and it's very layered. And, you know, even like calling back to how you were talking about this idea that it was a response to Casablanca, like there is no romanticism whatsoever in this movie. It's completely stripped away. So even if it was a response to this romanticized ideation of America post-World War II. None of that even exists. I mean, we're not even in America at this time. Our two leading American characters are incredibly, you know, grimy and almost making their own luck. They're oh, not really grimy. capitalizing. That's, yes. That's yeah, the they're word. not even capitalizing on any semblance of what was potentially perceived at that time as American values. It's very much kind of day-to-day, -day, um, angle by angle, if you will, for these two people, speaking particularly of Johnny and Gilda. Um, so it's really interesting to see this like very murkiness, this shallowness with the characters and with their um, very specific, almost selfish and indulgent means of survival tactics. It, it's I think that the lack of clarity is very purposeful, um, whether or not it's a response to any of the romanticized films of that time period as well is is kind of, you know, up for debate. But I wouldn't be surprised if if it was unintentionally a response to that, John. I, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, as you bring it up, it does sort of dawn on me that the exposition in this movie never really gets into the characters' backstories. I did make a note of how they don't frame Johnny Farrell as a war veteran, which is sort of surprising. You'd think they would maybe try to fit that in there, to be a little bit more overt about that if that's the case, or say it as a, you know, he should have been a war veteran, maybe do the Casablanca thing in that sense, where it's like, you got to do your part. Uh, but they don't, they don't do that. They just, they even have a line of dialogue at one point, I forget who says it, who basically says like, we're all born today. You know, this movie is very in the moment in the sense that they're, they're, you kind of said this dialogue earlier too, it was like their, their past doesn't really matter. It doesn't really inform anything. And so then, as you said, it, it's very murky about the details of what's going on in the movie. You kind of have to really pay attention to everything these characters are saying to get the full picture of okay why why do johnny and gilda 
have such a strict antagonism for each other. Who did what to who? And I really like that there is, first of all, there is exposition. <laughs> like they do explain plenty of things and like, okay, here's how the cartel works. There's tungsten, whatever. But when it comes to the emotional depth of things, there's no exposition there. And that's interesting because it does feel true to life. That does feel like when you're talking to people and you, you, you know, it doesn't have that moment of like, as you know, blah, blah, blah thing that you knew. And I had no reason to tell you that <laughs> this thing that you already knew. There's none of that in this movie, which I love. Yeah, I mean, even thinking back, I, I'm hinging on this um, comparison that you've made to Casablanca. You know, in that film, we get these really beautiful overtures with Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart as their leading characters, having these really romantic weekends and being together. And we have that baseline foundation for these two characters and what subsequently happens to them and does the decisions that they make throughout the rest of the film in the present narrative that we're watching and that makes us a lot more emotionally invested with gilda it almost seems like that that facade is completely stripped away and we only get these vague ruminations i mean there's that scene where balin and gilda and johnny are having drinks together for the first time in the club yeah. after gilda and balin have gotten married and it's her like introduction to his quote-unquote place of work and and the club and everything and they toast to the ruination of this woman who supposedly slighted johnny and gilda has a lot of very clear apprehension to the to the incredible credit of rita hayworth's like spot-on performance in this movie there's a very visible apprehension there's a lot of superstition and we don't really know if that's superstition because she is this woman who potentially could have done wrong by her former lover or if it's because she knows that she's toasting to a lie we really don't know until later on in the film when certain details are very quickly but very clearly revealed to us right i think i the entire time i was watching rita hayworth take this role on uh, first of all i was really enthralled with how she really takes the the femi fatale uh, archetype and really makes it something unusual it it's there's way more vulnerability there than you know you would see from something like a Laura Bacall performance or something where it, it feels like that femme fatale is like really in control and when they're not in control it, it sort of flips on a dime but with Gilda it's like a spectrum of caution and intelligence and i just never quite know what she's going to say next or what her true motivations are at least up until later in the film and i yeah i was cycling through so many performances and being like i can i finally understand why when i have heard about this movie and i've been told by people who enjoyed the film quite a bit what they like about it they always talk about rita hayworth they always talk about how she really offers a version of the femme fatale that is just difficult to top because it is just so prototypical it it offers so much story behind her character she doesn't exist just as like a plot device to get the the characters to do one thing over the other the gender dynamics are fascinating i think i'm, I'm so used to these noir films where you see the character and they come on screen and they just feel like props and they feel like they don't have any agency beyond a very contrived script. We see that today with films where it really just comes down to he likes her, but she's with him. Oh no. And that's the movie. But this movie is like, no, <laughs> there's like a, a devil's bargain going on with these three people. And it's fascinating. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking of like the femme fatale archetype, um, and Sheila O'Malley also alludes to this in her very well-written essay about how this archetype is very, I would say, strict, but what Rita Hayworth does, and also to the immense credit of Charles Vidor, who directs her performance, there's a lot of complication within the character of Gilda. It's not within these strict boundaries that this woman is kind of playing around. And there is a lot of complication because I feel like a lot of the core of Gilda's character is not femme fatale. I really do think that. I think that she likes to think that she is playing that role. And I think that there are certain facial cues that we get to see from Rita Hayworth's performance where she knows that she's supposed to like be playing this almost self incredibly self-aware. She knows what she's done. She knows what she's doing right now. But there's that lack of control that I really don't think we see in one of the best examples of the archetype of the femme fatale is Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. And that mm -hmm. woman is very clearly in control or has this perception of control pretty much the entire film up into the very last scene that she is in. Um, but with Rita Hayworth, there is this complete uneasiness throughout the entire movie, even from the first moment that she flips her hair backwards and she has this bright smile and then she sees Johnny Farrell and it's like, oh, this is all gone out the window now. Now <laughs> yeah. we have to even, now we have to, as if she wasn't already being very diplomatic and strategic about her behavior and how was she and how she is um, portraying herself to other people, now it's doubly so, and it's compounded by the fact that her history has come into the picture. Do you think then that's why maybe people had a hard time figuring this movie out when they first saw it? Because it's like you said, it is turning that archetype on its head. It's doing something totally different with it to the point where, yeah, you're right, it, it really isn't. The, the type of femme fatale we've seen, it's much more self-aware than that. And there's a lot of times in this movie where I, I did feel like they were kind of not, maybe not breaking the fourth wall, but definitely knocking on it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we can even be a little bit more clear about this. I mean, back in the 40s, they weren't really thinking about these terms like femme fatale and film noir and Good point, manipulating yeah. genres. Like You'll such know it when way. you see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just kind of like a bit of a wink and a nod sort of thing. But there wasn't the developed language that we have nowadays, which is, you know, decades upon decades later. So I think that, you know, one of the things that I continue to um, not necessarily ponder, but one of the note, mental notes that I kept thinking to myself was like, there's really no one to really root for in this film. You're kind of watching people with their own motives and with their own angles trying to get to the end of the movie and hopefully survive by the end of it. I, I root for Gilda. Well, yeah, I mean... That's definitely fair. I mean, especially by the end of the movie when you understand that she's much more of a pawn than she is this self-possessed woman that she's that she believes herself to be, then yeah, that's definitely that's definitely well worth the um um rooting for her and I, I guess if we want to take like that kind of language for it, but I mean it's very much like very messy people making very messy and dangerous yeah. mistakes and choices and it, I think it's very much I think part of the uh, conflation of audiences during that time is there wasn't a very clear 
hero or heroine or villain. I mean, it, it's just shades on shades of um, maybe this person is bad or I know this person is bad, but they have some redeeming qualities and maybe they should live and, and that sort of thing, I guess. You know, I, I was thinking about this a lot too in the beginning of the film when we, we kind of get our characters introduced to us. And what I, what I love about films like this, and in, in the 40s in particular, the 40s are very, very unique to me when it comes to evaluating the reasons certain movies get made and why filmmakers decide to make certain movies. And I really saw a lot of that in the thinking behind what will this movie be successful and how do we make it successful? And what I mean is when you watch the movie, you can definitely see like, okay, Glenn Ford's character, Johnny Farrell, he, he's such a, he's the kind of, the kind of guy that you watch and he's like, he makes his own luck and all of that. But just this idea of like, he's scrappy, he is resourceful and he's working class and his, the main antagonist for him in most of this film is this like onslaught of the guy, the robber baron, the guy who is trying to have a monopoly and own it all. And then, yeah, he, there, there are some like light, like working class, class warfare touches in here where somebody can watch that and be like, yeah, I, I see myself in that character. But then for Gilda, you definitely see like the glamour and the nuance that, you know, wives can respond to when they watch the movie. But then I watched, and I'm saying that just in the sense that they were probably thinking this is a movie where couples will go see it and, you know, what's going to be interesting about it? Like, you know, the the people like more exotic locations, so we're going to do this in another country and all of that. I, I see, I can see all of the thinking behind why this movie would be successful to people for all of those reasons and more. But I guess, like, I'm trying to understand the the cheating aspect of it and how much how much were they really aware of what they were saying with this? Because there's a lot of time, there are a lot of times in this movie where they equate or try to raise the specter of how men cheat at, at gambling a lot and don't feel like remorse for it, at least with Johnny Farrell, like Johnny Farrell's cheating the casino and he finds out that his boss Munson, he cheats, you know, capitalism in the sense where, or you could argue he is just sort of like gaming capitalism the way we're pretty used to, but you know what I'm saying? He's like, he's gaming like the free market in the sense that he's trying to own up everything. And with Gilda, that the reason I root for her is because like, she's not doing anything wrong. She's just trying to live her life, sing a few songs, have a good time. But it's sort of foisted on her, this expectation that you cheat on, you know, your husband, you cheat on men, you're unfaithful. You, when you make your own luck, you make your own luck in relationships. And that's the part of the movie that I, I'm still fresh on it, Julius. I'm I'm still processing that and trying to reckon with what is this movie saying, either intentionally or unintentionally, about how people society reacts when women supposedly cheat in movies versus when men cheat because here it's not that the men are cheating on their wives oh ho, ho, that doesn't happen right of course we we understand now that i mean they understood stood then too that that's certainly not the case but yeah i guess a long rambling way of me saying i do not know what to make of this movie's commentary sometime on this topic at least oh yeah i mean you know, I think that we have to also look at it within the constraints of the time period that it was made. This is the 40s, so I'm not necessarily sure that there was a particular nuance in terms of the 
morality of right, um, yeah. monogamy, what have you, and equating that to gambling and cheating capitalism. But I do think that, you know, this idea of trying to make Gilda seem like such a vile character is compounded on the fact that throughout the film until like the last act is that, you know, a lot of her villainy, as it were, is this idea that she can't be monogamous with whichever partners she is um, publicly affiliated with or connected to. And we find out later on in the film that she was literally just trying to find some human connection and some decency and not trying to feel particularly watched or controlled. I think control specifically with Gilda and bodily control is one of the biggest themes in the film and it's compounded later on by that incredibly famous scene where she sings put the blame on mame and that black satin dress that apparently has its own wikipedia page um but i definitely <laughs> yeah. think that this idea of just bodily control in terms of women in these films during that time period and within film noir too i mean i think with femme fatales and that archetype, especially thinking back to Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity, you know, this idea that if you don't believe that this person is not someone that you should root for, here's this evidence that we can show you. Here are these nods and winks that the film can give you in order for you to feel like you're assured in having these um complicated emotions uncomplicated by this evidence but what makes Gilda so much more complicated than any than any other film noir is that any of that evidence anything we see on screen is completely turned on its head by the end and it's revealed that you know Gilda was only trying to have fun and have nice conversations with men who weren't trying to specifically control her body and keep her in a cage a gilded cage well put. And we should mention, too, that song that you brought up, Put the Blame on Mame. It's, it's an original song um, that was staged by Jack Cole, uh, that and Amato Mio. And it's technically sung by Anita Kurt, uh, Ellis, who they dubbed in her singing for the song. And I, it really struck me, too, because the song comes up a couple of times. And it was the second time where I was like, OK, clearly they're trying to say something here about the way that we we all of these disasters that happen we could just put the blame on mame which is a, a euphemism for they say a cow in the movie but it's supposed i looked it up because i was like but that's i'm pretty sure mame is is supposed to be referring to like a female name so you could extrapolate from that and she's kind of essentially saying it's like people blame me for all of this stuff and i can just go along with it because that is my mode of survival uh, i don't know i'm just kind of <laughs> speculating there but that that's that's what I, I i get out of it i really do miss these the, the times of the the 40s and 50s when movies could just all of a sudden marilyn monroe gets on there and just starts singing a song and uh, it says the themes of the movie i've, I've always really enjoyed that uh what, what are some other things about the film between like the music the, the costume design that just really stand out for you yeah, I mean, going back to your point about the music, um, one of the things that Sheila O'Malley also wrote in her essay is kind of how this film was also a quasi-response to movie musicals of that time period as well in the 40s, mm -hmm. and how music really isn't this escapist moment is very much a part 
of the narrative. So especially with Amada Mio and with the put the blame on main performance that she does um, in front of people, not when she's playing the guitar, almost like for herself and for this, um, for someone who works in, in the casino as well. Um, but it's very much tells you a lot about Gilda as a character. I mean, Amata Mio, I feel like for the audience is the first time we really get to see Gilda's body be a lot more free. And it's a lot less contained, it's less controlled, but it's still very precise and, and oriented to precision in every movement that she makes, um, which I think is also a connection to a lot of the um, psychoanalysis that the character does or that people can see playing out for Gilda throughout the film. But then Put the Blame on Mame, I think, is one of the most um, iconic moments from this film. I mean, you have the hair flip and then you have this particular performance where she shimmies her shoulders and she takes off her long black glove that goes all the way up to her elbow. And it's a lot about this, like, you know, reclamation of her body and her ability to move, even if it's not in that, in that particular dance floor space. It definitely represents an outward space outside of of that arena but still very much self-contained and then it continues on you know it doesn't end when the music stops playing at one point gilda says i'm not very good with zippers and she invites men on stage to kind of unzip her out of this dress that that is containing her as well so it's just it, it i think it's there's a lot of like we've been saying and alluding to throughout this conversation, there are a lot of layers and intertextuality within the screenplay that was written. And as much as the musical moments are a response to the movie musicals of that time period, they're also very much embedded into the core narrative and the um, Gilda's character fluidity. The the blame on Mame sequence is just such a standout scene that and also I, the carnival the entire you know set of scenes involving the carnival and all of that drama <laughs> but yet yeah, to your point you you're literally watching right and you can see like she's like throwing the it's like she's throwing parts of her body to the people she chooses you know she's like this is you know this this is what like the control that i get to have literally throwing jewelry and all of that which i, I thought was interesting too because there was even a conversation about like the clip can be replaced as she as uh, balan tells her at one point where he feels like no but i feel like i lost you and she just sort of sees these things though as like well it's part of me you know the clip is something that you know uh, i get to choose what i get to do with my body and who i get to be with and all of that and uh, i did i do have to clear up by the way that in the version where she's performing the song in the black gown that is when uh, her voice is dubbed but she she does sing herself when she does put the blame on me via guitar so that that was her real voice i should have said that before um because of course she did she obviously did so well in that scene i love that scene it reminded me of breakfast at tiffany's one of my favorite scenes of all time in any film is the ukulele scene in that one but 
Yeah, I, I, Julia, you know, I came into this conversation ready to gush about this film because I had such a good time watching it. But can can I, since you did bring up the ending and then the last part of it, can I can I bring up the one thing that is getting in my way, which is full on love festing, Gilda? Go for it. I'm ready to hear it. I I want to, and I want to hear what you think. I just I think the ending of it is a little underwhelming and I just do not like, and then we're going to like full on spoil at this point. And I just think this idea is like, it was just a misunderstanding. She never cheated on anybody. And Oh, it's okay that you put me in a cage and abused me for months to maybe even a year. It's not very clear. It's fine. Now we can be together. And, and it's so convenient that Uncle Pio stabbed the guy and now we can just leave. I, I just felt like this is not the movie I was watching. I wasn't watching this contrived, melodramatic thing. I was watching Gilda, which felt smarter and more nuanced than that. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I do need to think about it. So I think that you might actually be overcomplicating it a little bit for yourself. Um, that is very possible. Because, <laughs> yeah, because what I took and understood from the ending of the film, and again, this is the third time I've watched it, so it's taken some time for me to see this ending and understand it a little bit more critically, is that we're not really supposed to be completely satisfied with this. It's not a happy ending. Let's be honest. After the what is it, 111 minutes that we watched? There's yeah, no way that that's yeah, supposed to be yeah. happy. And based on the, and we know that based on the evidence from what we've seen throughout Johnny and Gilda's relationship, there is no way that, you know, they're going to fly off into the sunset, go back home, as it were, and everything's going to go back to sunshine and daisies yeah, that's, that's definitely my takeaway they don't trust each other they can't no. trust each other yeah. no i i think that you know it's the long con for them i think that whether or not they're working together or whether they're working individually to try and continue to maneuver life for themselves um on a very selfish or individual level hmm. that's completely up for debate but i don't particularly think that charles vidor intended for audiences to walk away with it being like a happy ending perhaps perhaps people did and that made them satisfied so i think that what you get out of that ending is you get some semblance of satisfaction for audiences who weren't necessarily rating too far into the film who think oh yes it was a misunderstanding and now they can get out right. of those <laughs> they can get out of this really hellish space that they've been in this underground where there aren't any windows they can see outside they can literally go out and smell the roses go back home what have you but for other audiences who psychoanalyze everything to the nth degree i think that we can leave it knowing and understanding oh no this isn't the ending this is just the end of a chapter for these two characters and it's you know we already know that this isn't going to necessarily pan out well for them and I don't think it's meant to be completely dissatisfying or underwhelming. I think it's just meant to be, you know, this is the next phase for these two characters, for Johnny and for Gilda, to move on to the next great heist or con or dice game. They're going to roll the <laughs> dice on what happens next. That's a good point. Well, it's it's funny, too, because, we, again, we are looking at it with modern eyes. We've seen films like The Graduate. <laughs> You know, we've seen films like his, well, I guess his Girl Friday only lightly does this, where in that film, 
they do, they do sort of leave it open for like, if you're a more cynical person, you might have a totally different interpretation of the ending and that's just as valid. And I think that movie does a good job of communicating that without alienating the people who might get caught up in the wish fulfillment of the ending and be like, how nice, how sweet these these kids are going to go off and have a good old time when other people will watch this and be like, well, where's the part where they're walking off and they both have that, like their faces change and they have the sudden realization that this is never really going to work out, is it? Because there's just been too much imparted. I, get, I guess that's where I, I get I get caught up in it. And of course, I have to be much more fair to the film considering it is, an, an er, by all intents and purposes, it is a very early film in the tapestry of, of films that we have available to us today. True, and it's also made during the constraint of the studio system as well. So we also don't know if this That's was, true. you know, Can't be too dark. that was a part of the initial vision for Charles Vidor, or if this was something that the studio system was like, uh, you have to give the people a happy ending, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, Charles Vidor himself had a lot of you know, back and forth with certain executives, had a lot of strain, have a, had a couple of strained relationships um, with uh, management and studio execs and producers. So, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I think that for the both of us who are incredibly interested and for any listeners who are interested, that's well worth a deep dive. But I think that um, on face value, we can lead with one of two answers of the people who you know, saw a little bit more deeply into it and the nuances of what Vidor was trying to do with this story and understand that there is something a little bit uneasy and a bit sinister about the ending. Or conversely, for people who were just looking for a little bit of escapism and um, a happy ending at the end of that tor- turmoil that they bore witness to, got what they what they came to see. So I, I wanted to bring up Real quick, there is a review of the film from Variety. Did did you see the the Variety review? Um, it no. came out March twentieth when this oh film. Boy. Yeah, <laughs> we we don't have a uh, credited film critic. It's by Variety staff, so uh, I'd I'd probably have to do a little bit of research to figure out from nineteen forty six, making yeah. it clear that it's f- decades and decades ago. Exactly, exactly. So this is a very early form of film criticism, to be clear. Uh, so they, they praise things like uh, how Hayworth is shot in the film, and they they say that it's a, it's probably good that they're not very subtle about her sex appeal and, and things like that. And they do say, uh, so Gilda is obviously an expensive production and shows it. The direction is static, but that's more the fault of the writers. And when I read this, I definitely disagreed. I, I don't see the direction as static. I actually saw some really good direction gimmicks here, some good creative techniques, uh, particularly with a character we haven't talked about too much, Munson, who I think the way that he is presented in this film, he ha- at times is a silhouette. At times the scene doesn't even show his face for prolonged periods of time. I think the, the I think the camera is in love with staging these three characters and playing around with them, but I I don't know what do what do you think, Julia? Is it is there merit you think to that criticism? Not really, honestly. Um, I mean Charles Vidor, from what I've read, was very much known for that time of not being a one type of particular director. He dabbled in comedy, in drama, in musicals. He's worked with Gene, he worked with Gene Kelly before. Yeah. So I mean, his style was never necessarily um, quite clear to the naked eye. 
Uh, I think that he was definitely a, a filmmaker who was very adaptable depending on what the narrative and what the story called for. And uh, specifically with uh, Gilda too, I mean, a lot of credit also has to be given to the cinematographer who also happened to work with Rita Hayworth a number of times on previous projects. Rudolf Matei uh, was the director of photography for Gilda. And, you know, as you previously said, I mean, the camera really loves Rita Hayworth. I think that it would be a you know, kind of a silly conjecture to make that yeah. <laughs> the camera never did not love Frida Hayworth or a lot of the stars, the female stars of uh, the classic Hollywood period. Um, but yeah, I, I find that kind of commentary on direction pretty moot considering the fact that Vidor is partly responsible. I mean, Rita Hayworth is solely responsible for embodying Gilda, but a lot of credit also has to be given to Charles Vidor for directing her performance and for, you know, chore choreographing these scenes and for ensuring that that vision was carried through. Yeah, I'm glad you you mentioned Rudolf Matei, of course, who not just a cinematographer, but he was also a pretty successful film director. He did plenty of films for Columbia, Universal, and I forgot to mention, of course, that this is a Columbia film. And uh, yeah, and as a cinematographer, his credits are far and wide. He seriously made some incredible films. He directed and shot It Had to Be You, which uh, is definitely a film I, I hold near and dear to my heart, but also Foreign Correspondent. Uh, yeah, yeah you, could, you could look through the list. I mean, the guy absolutely has uh, an incredible uh, cinematography career, including, and I always have to bring this up because it continues to be one of my favorite films of all time, The Passion of Joan of Arc. The 1928 film, so even back in the silent film era. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of Passion of Joan of Arc, but uh, anybody listening, if you have ever been like, John, Julia, I don't know about these silent films. They just don't work for me. I don't know what to do. Please watch The Passion of Joan of Arc because it might change your mind. Uh, that is All a, you have to do is literally see, and I think that there's a gif that goes around film Twitter every yeah. once in a while. <laughs> it's it's of jo the character Joan of Arc um, and just like tears streaming down her face. It's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. Yes. There's tears streaming down my face just thinking about it. <laughs> but okay. So is, are there any other, as we kind of move into a little final stage of our, of our own here, and is there anything else you want to add? Anything we kind of miss? I mean, there's plenty. I mean, we touched on Uncle Pio, who play one of my favorite characters in this, uh, Stephen Gray, uh, who I think is so wonderful. There's also this, you know, kind of ho-hum detective subplot with Joseph Kelly as uh, Detective Obergon, which, okay, you know, it's part of the film. Uh, but yeah, is there anything else we should mention? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the themes that becomes pretty evident um, within the first five minutes of the film is the uh, the coding of Balin Munson's sexuality throughout yes. the film and kind of like the, the queer coding of Balin from the point where Johnny Farrell says to him, you lead a very gay life to him referencing, to Balin referencing his walking stick that also turns into a knife at the end yeah of very very subtle <laughs> yeah it's um he refers to it as his little friend he also prescribes a gender to the um the uh very clearly phallic object that he's uh, his character is consistently associated with 
I think there are also references from different scholarship about how Johnny Farrell, um, whenever he's in the house with Balin and he's walking behind Balin up the stairs, there's, there's this sense of uneasiness from Glenn Ford's performance as well. So I think that that's definitely something that if listeners are interested in diving in deeper, definitely encourage you to check out readings on um, the queer coding of Balin Munson's sexu uh, sexuality throughout um, or the queer coding of Balin Munson's character throughout the film. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's definitely a pretty persistent thing in the film. It it kind of boggles my mind how overt it is, and you know, at least by modern eyes. And again, that speaks a lot to what I was alluding to before, where I just I love that this film is way more subtle about these things, or it even it has these things to talk about in a film that is 75 years old and is aging pretty well by my estimation. Uh, only one last thing I have to to mention here is that the screenplay is a very impressive debut from Joe Isinger. This was his first film, and he would go on to be pretty well known as a great film noir writer due to Gilda and one of his other films. Films not too long after this night in the city um, which I, I actually haven't seen night in the city I'm a little embarrassed but that's the that's I think that's by Jules Dassin uh, but that, that is supposed to be a good film with Gene Tierney in it and yeah it, it, he's done plenty of other films uh, like Sleeping City Crime of Passion and uh, I think he did uh, uh, the Oscar Wilde film from uh, 1960 so yeah as a screenwriter very very great career and I think it's very impressive that Gilda was his first film and he uh, adapted the screenplay here uh, from E.A. Ellington and co-wrote it with, I think, Marion Personette, who helped out a lot. And Ben Hecht is uncredited on the script. Um, and I, I think we have talked about Ben Hecht a few times on Extra Milestone. Um, he's definitely a very well-known, like, this is the guy you bring in, you know, to, to help you out when uh, certain, when the story just isn't quite working. This guy, he could do it all. Novelist, short story writer, journalist, playwright, and screenwriter. Uh, truly one of the greats. But yeah, uh, that's that's all I have left to say of Gilda. I'm, I'm happy we found time to talk about it. I really hope people check it out if they haven't seen it already or revisit it if it's been a minute because I think that it holds up so well. And I mean, one thing I haven't really mentioned is that on a pure entertainment factor, Julia, I just was enamored with this movie. It, it went by like that. An hour 45, it felt like maybe 35 minutes. Oh yeah, it goes by, especially on a first watch, it goes by very, very quickly. Um, a lot of twists and turns that you don't necessarily expect that are definitely staples of the film noir genre, but this completely stands out on its own within uh, that realm of filmography. All right. Well, let us know what you think of Gilda. As always, you can send us an email. If you have any questions or feedback or just want to talk to us, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. We'll be letting you all know, per, letting you all know pretty soon what our next film for Extra Milestone is going to be. Julian, I haven't decided yet. I'm looking at the list and uh, there's a few winners on there. So we'll do our best to, to make it a good one. And uh, definitely looking forward to hearing all of your thoughts on Gilda once you've had a chance to see the film for yourselves. Julia Tady, if people want to follow more of your, your witty sayings and your commentary on all things film, where can they do that? You guys can follow me on the Bird app, also known as Twitter, at JLTET14 for all memes, critical musings, and I don't know, psychoanalytical <laughs> conversations with my cat, who you might hear meowing throughout this episode. 
yeah, your meme game as usual is pretty strong. And of course, link to both of our Twitters are in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to subscribe to Cinemaholics on your favorite podcast app of choice or find us on YouTube. See you all next time.